Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, What Are We? It's based upon the lectionary readings for October 3rd, 2021. I grew up with parents who encouraged me to memorize long portions of scripture. On Sunday afternoons after church, my mother would write out the week's learn-by-heart assignment on a large index card. And by the following Saturday, I would recite the assigned portion back to her from memory. When I was little, the assignments were little too. God is love. Rejoice always. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As I grew older, the assignments grew appropriately longer. The Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes, the Love Chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. The assignments I remember receiving most frequently, though, came from the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I lift my eyes up to the mountains, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. I remember my mother telling me that I'd be grateful when I grew up to have the beauty, honesty, and wisdom of the Bible's hymn book stored in my heart and mind. She said the words would come back to me when I needed them. She was right. Sure, I did my fair share of complaining about her assignments when I was a kid, but now I am beyond grateful. The words do come back, and they are gifts every time. One of the first psalms I memorized in its entirety is the psalm from this week's lectionary. I've been reciting it to myself over the past few days and finding yet again, just as my mother promised, that its ancient wisdom speaks beautifully to our contemporary moment. At the heart of Psalm 8 is an existential question. What are we? Specifically, what is humankind, or more accurately in the Hebrew, what is a single human person in the grand scheme of God's vast and magnificent creation? What value, significance, purpose, or merit does a human being have such that God chooses to be mindful of her, that God bothers to care for him? How should we measure and situate our species in relation to the cosmos that surrounds us? What sort of scale should we use? The psalmist arrives at this question by gazing at the night sky. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established— What are human beings that you are mindful of them? Like many of us who find ourselves blissfully undone by a star-studded sky, the sheer expanse of the ocean, a mountain range that grazes the clouds, or the staggering diversity of the animal kingdom, the psalmist loses his sense of scope and scale in relation to the celestial wonders above his head. Even without the benefits of modern science, he recognizes that the vastness he's observing requires a recalibration. His own measurements are useless. He needs God to show him who and what he really is. What does he discover? He discovers two seemingly contradictory truths. Human beings are laughably insignificant. We are mere specks, fleeting and tiny in the big picture of God's grandeur. But we are at the same time glorious because God considers us partners and co-creators, caretakers and stewards of all that God has made. We are invaluable because God has decided that we are. God is mindful of us. God cares for us. God trusts us. Under God's loving and attentive gaze, our place in creation has become profoundly meaningful. We have a vocation that matters, a vocation that carries consequences. As I mentioned before, this is a psalm for our time. Why? 
because I think many of us have forgotten who we are, or at least we've forgotten half of who we are. As a culture, we have lost our capacity to hold the paradox of Psalm 8, the paradox that we are simultaneously small and big, insignificant and grand, peripheral and essential. We've forgotten how to hold this tension and order our lives according to its wisdom. We tend to spend our days leaning too hard in one direction or another. As soon as we war successfully against insignificance, grandiosity steps onto the battlefield and knocks us over. How might we remember and correct our course? I wonder if the psalm itself can show us a way forward. I wonder if it can reorient us when we forget either our smallness or our grandness. Here's it how. We can begin and end with praise. The writer brackets this psalm with an exclamation of praise and worship to God. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It has taken me many years to figure out why worship really matters in the Christian life. As a child and young adult, I didn't understand why God needed my worship. Was God really so arrogant, so greedy for compliments, so desperate for adoration? Of course not. Praise is essential not because God needs it, but because we do. We need to remember that God's transcendence, glory, goodness, and compassion are the foundation we stand on. They are the parentheses within which we live, move, and have our being. We are not in charge. God is. We are not the masters of the universe. God is. So the psalmist begins and ends his poem by decentering himself and centering God. It is God who is sovereign, God who is majestic, God whose name is imprinted throughout creation. We can gaze, wonder, notice, and contemplate. It is too easy in our digitized and curated lives to forget that our own experiences, emotions, opinions, and preferences aren't the only ones worth privileging. Fortunately, God has infused creation itself with the medicine we need. When I consider, writes the psalmist, when I gaze, when I contemplate, when I position myself in the big picture of God's huge and varied world, my sense of scale shifts. It is in God's handiwork, the stars, the moon, the laughing mouths of babies, that accurate proportion lies. It's good to feel tiny at the edge of the roaring sea. Good to stand beneath a tree that has lived a thousand years before me and will live another thousand after I'm gone. Good to remember that I'm only here for a fleeting time and that the supposed enormities of my life are tiny in God's patient eternity. It's good to feel small, young, and new against the backdrop of the timeless. We can take our place in God's good order. If half of our trouble lies in forgetting our smallness, the other half lies in forgetting our grandeur. Consider all the ways in which we devalue human life, treating each other as insignificant and even expendable. Consider how quickly and viciously we judge ourselves when we fail in some endeavor or another, as if our lives have no value beyond what we can produce or perfect. Consider how seldom we bask in what we actually are, the beloved creations of God. You have made human beings a little lower than God and crowned them with honor and glory, writes the psalmist. No, we are not God, but we are also far from nothing. We have a crowned place in God's created order, an intrinsic value that does not depend on our own achievements and accomplishments. Our place is simply our place. God has ordained it for us in love. We benefit no one when we shy away from the honor God has freely chosen to bestow upon us. We can dedicate ourselves to our vocation. While our place in God's creation is a gift, it comes with a responsibility. 
This is where the question of our value, our significance, our tremendous power in relation to the rest of reality becomes urgent. As the psalmist puts it, you have given human beings dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. We human beings don't have a good track record when it comes to honoring our vocation as stewards and caretakers of creation. We have exchanged dominion for domination, twisting our divine vocation into something mingy, greedy, short-sighted, and destructive. We have stripped, extracted, exploited, and impoverished in the very places where God wants us to plant, cultivate, tend, and nourish. We've allowed ourselves to believe that our imprint is small and negligible when in fact it is huge and powerful enough to be catastrophic. We've neglected to see the interconnectedness at the heart of God's creative design, our dependence on the wellness of the earth and the earth's dependence on our tenderness and generosity. In short, we've forgotten that it is no small thing to be entrusted with dominion. Ours is a responsibility to approach with holy fear and trembling, a responsibility that should bring us to our knees. And yet it is a responsibility that has the potential to reorient us, a responsibility that can give proper and humble shape to our grandness. We have been crowned with glory and honor, not for our own self-aggrandizement, but for the thriving and blessing of God's good creation. What are we? What are we that God's mindfulness rests on us? What are we that God cares for us with such intensity? So much depends on how we answer this question. So much depends on our holding tight to both our smallness and our bigness, our humility and our grandeur. May we find ways to cling to all of who we are. May we live out of the fullness of our insignificance, our crowning, our dependent, and our divine vocation, so that God's name will be honored through our fleeting days. For books this week, Dan reviews Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family by Robert Kolker. From the outside, Don and Mimi Galvin's baby boomer family looked picture perfect. The photo on the book's dust jacket says it all. Mom, Dad, and their 12 children impeccably dressed and standing ramrod straight in a perfect arc down a spiral staircase. And that was the family's harmonious narrative. Never was heard a discouraging word, especially from the perfectionist mother, for whom self-reflection seemed impossible, and likewise the demanding and distant father. But as the years rolled by, a dark and dreadful reality crashed down upon everyone when six of the ten Galvin boys were diagnosed with schizophrenia. What followed were decades of dysfunction, violence, abuse, endless quests for medical help, and, let it be said, some degree of healing, resilience, and a new understanding of what it means to be family. Robert Kolker's best-selling book was named one of the top 10 books of 2020 by numerous outlets, New York Times, Oprah, Wall Street Journal. His tone and tenor exude compassion, but he never flinches from the hard truths of the Galvin story. The book is a classical medical case study in humanity's most perplexing disease that affects about one out of a hundred people. This includes a history of the science of schizophrenia and the complex and controversial debates surrounding everything about it, its definition, causes, and cures, There are many actors here, family, doctors, researchers, universities, mental institutions, private and public, drug companies, funding agencies, friends, helpful and not, and the Catholic Church to which the family was deeply dedicated. In a classy move at the end of the book, Kolker acknowledges that this book is a testament to the entire family's generosity, candor, and faith that their story can be a help to others. In the notes on sources, we learn that every living member of the Galvin family participated in hundreds of hours of interviews with Kolker.
The Galvins are not alone. One researcher identified more than a thousand multiplex families in which more than one person in the family had schizophrenia. For more on this important theme of mental illness, see my reviews of the books by A.K. Benjamin, Let Me Not Be Mad, My Story of Unraveling Minds, and Catherine Mean Green McCrate's Darkness is My Only Companion, A Christian Response to Mental Illness, and then the movies I Am Maris, Tarnation, and Love and Mercy. For films this week, Dan reviews Coded Bias. A few days before I watched this movie, the NYRB published a lengthy review of a book called When Machines Can Be Judge, Jury, and Executioner, Justice in the Age of Artificial Intelligence by Catherine Forrest. It's about how our criminal justice system uses computer-generated algorithms and the biases that are inherent in so doing. That's just one of numerous similar examples given in the movie Coded Bias, which considers the inherent biases of race, class, and gender in things like facial recognition biometrics, which are now banned in several municipalities. Critics have observed how China now uses AI-based social credit score, but something similar already works here. We are all graded for a broad array of risk-reward factors by computer algorithms in hiring and firing, performance evaluation, bank mortgages, predatory lending, housing, health insurance, building security, college applications, and on and on. These algorithms the movie shows are not just biased, they can also be abusive, inaccurate, and unregulated, with no court of appeal or redress. Coded Bias premiered at the 2020 Sundance Festival and then was released on Netflix in April of 2021. And lastly, for poetry today, Wendell Berry's The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for October 3rd, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.